I just got back from Philadelphia. I played the Philadelphia Folk Festival, the oldest folk festival in America. Had a good time. I met some very nice people, made some new friends. I met a lot of folks who said they enjoy this show, which is always a good thing. And there were three different people that I was chasing. I was supposed to get together and record something for this show, and it did not happen. All three fell through. Everybody involved was trying their best to make it happen, but sometimes that's the way it works out. Sometimes it doesn't work out. The festival takes place outside of Philly quite a ways, and I didn't have a car, so I was kind of stranded. And at some point, I realized we were just 14 miles away from the town where The Blob was filmed. The movie theater in the original Blob is still standing, and you could see a movie there. And it was driving me nuts that I was 14 miles away and couldn't get over there to see a movie in the theater where the blob was filmed. That's a little bit of a glimpse into who I am as an individual. That might not mean much to a lot of the people listening to this, but the fans of 50s sci-fi movies will know exactly what I'm talking about. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I'd like to say right off the bat that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Lomax. You can find out everything you need to know about John at Lomax3.com. I can't count the amount of times I'd be sitting at a bar in Texas talking about guitar players, and there'll be an older person there who will talk about the time they saw Rocky Hill playing live and talk about what a great guitar player he was. And after they talk about what a great guitar player he was, there would be a story about Rocky behaving badly or blowing opportunities. I recently realized that John Lomax managed Rocky Hill back in the 70s. I didn't know that until recently. So I asked John if he would be nice enough to share some Rocky Hill stories. John was more than happy to do it. If you want to hear Rocky Hill playing guitar, there's a few recordings that are available on the streaming services like Spotify. He was in a band called American Blues with his brother Dusty Hill and Frank Beard from ZZ Top. There's a long jamming psychedelic version of of If I Were a Carpenter that is a good place to start. But John was nice enough to invite me over to his home here in Nashville and we sat down and he told a lot of great stories. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's John Lomax. Actually, well before I met him, I had, being a record 
reviewer at the time for Space City News in Houston. That would have been in the very, very early 70s. I accumulated a lot of records, and one of them was the American Blues, which was the band that Rocky had with his brother Dusty Hill and Frank Beard. American Blues did uh, one album on Karma Records, a little tiny Dallas label, and then they did a second album that was on Uni, which was the same label that Elton John and Neil Diamond started on. So Uni was a big, big label, but it just didn't happen. They were playing electric blues rock as in a trio, and <clears throat> it just didn't it didn't happen. And Rocky got disgusted and quit the band, moved to Houston, and decided he wanted to be in the blues and went off to play bass for Lightning Hopkins. But I had heard these American blues records and thought, yeah, these are pretty good, and this guitar player is pretty cool. And they had this long extended version of If I Were a Carpenter, and <clears throat> Rocky would just take off on it. And uh, so I kind of knew who he was. Then... I guess in the mid of 72 or three, I met him and started seeing him play and was just absolutely floored because, and he's still my favorite electric guitar player still, but most of what I base that on is live shows that I've heard that there's no record of and the recordings that he did make really didn't show what he could do live, but he was a big, strong upper body head, this massive upper body strength. So he would play these really thick strings, and he'd have them up off the neck high enough that you roll a marble under them. So <laughs> other people couldn't even do it, couldn't even get it all down to the neck with a slide piece, and he could do it with his fingers, much less a slide. And so he, that gave him the ability to have this tone that was just staggeringly majestic and lovely. And I've never heard anyone get that. And he would just be playing straight into an amp with a Strat and just stunning, majestic sound. And then um, he had this sponge mind for every blues song he'd ever heard. He could hear a song once, and before it was done, he would could jump in and be playing along with it and taking leads and then come right back, just bam. He was phenomenal mind. And he'd studied the blues, obviously, went off with Lightning Hopkins. And also the other thing about him was, you know, Johnny Winter was coming along at the same time, but Johnny was a different style, and Johnny was sort of play a lot of notes, and Rocky had that B.B. King thing where you – He'd hit the right note and he'd hang, let it hang there for a little so you could appreciate it. He knew the art of, of less is more when you're playing electric guitar. And uh, I just, anyway, I became enamored of his playing and got to know him a little. And he told me all these stories about how everybody was screwing him around. And his man, he was working with Bill Ham then, who was ZZ Top's manager, of course. And, uh, Bill is this and Bill's that, and he's keeping me from doing this, and he wants Billy Gibbons to have everything, and he doesn't like me, and blah, blah. And I found out later that Rocky had actually been in the office with Bill and had gotten upset over something he'd said, and he'd picked up Bill's desk and dumped it on top of him and stormed out of the office. <laughs> so he and Bill were on the splits. The IRS was after him because he owed taxes, so... 
I said, look, I'll manage you and I'll get this tax thing taken care of and we'll, we'll go make a record. Right, right, so. They were all in Houston and they got a gig in Dallas. Rocky, Rocky and his brother, Dusty and Frank Beard all came from Sulphur Springs, Texas, which I think is Casey Musgrave's hometown up in Northeast Texas, about 120 miles out of Dallas. Eventually they moved to Dallas and then on into Houston. So Rocky had this trio in Houston and they got a booking for a club in Dallas and they all went off. Rocky loaded them up in the car with the amps and the drum kit and all, and they scooted up to Dallas, did the show. And uh, after the show, the drummer and bass player were looking around going, God, where, what happened? where's Rocky? Rocky just got in the car and drove home. Left him. <laughs> Left him in Dallas. Drum kit and amps. And the, the drummer was telling me, man, you don't know what life's like till you're trying to hitch a ride with two amps and a drum kit. <laughs> and two people on the side of the highway. <laughs> Rocky just left him. Not a word. Just got in the car and drove home. And, oh, man, another story was the fellow that was the co-owner of Liberty Hall in Houston, which was a real cool club in the late 60s, early 70s, mainly early 70s. It seat about 400, and that was where the Graham Parsons and his crew played six night, uh, six shows in four nights they would do. One show Thursday, one Sunday, two Friday, and two Saturday. And that way, a 400-seater could bring in some pretty good talent. There they, there they are in, at Liberty Hall, and Ryan uh, had gotten to know Rocky a little bit over the years. And Rocky, he had seen Rocky walking down the street, and he said, Hey, man, what's happening? What are you doing? Said, I ain't got no place to live anymore. He threw me out. I don't got no money. And so he said, Well, come on. I'll put you up for a while. You get get back on your feet and all. So he took him home, took him in, gave him a bedroom and fed him and, you know, and gave him, uh, you know, beer and whatnot. And, and, how, you know, and they he had a stash box, and they'd roll a joint smoke, and he Ryan would go off to work, and Rocky would do whatever. So one day he came home, and Rocky was gone, and so was the stash. And he found him a few days later and said, Rocky, what happened? Oh, man, I'm just sorry, but I just needed it, man. I just needed that stuff, and uh, I figured you could get some more, and I didn't have any money. Just like, oh, so I helped myself. <laughs> No apology other than just to say he needed, you know, he needed it more than the guy who had it. And that was sort of Rocky's uh, modus operandi, I guess. It just uh, the world owed him a living, and it was all someone else's fault, always. Never Rocky's fault. Oh, 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 the other thing was in 75. I got Rocky signed to Tomato Records. I was sort of functioning as Tomato's unpaid A&R person. And uh, Kevin Eggers, who ran Tomato, had brought Rocky up to play on a Johnny Winter record that he was involved with. So we had Rocky going on. I got Rocky to agree to sign with Tomato after a lot of wrangling. And the deal was that he would go with me to meet him in January of 75, at which point 
he would sign the deal with Tomato, and they would give him $10,000 cash in francs. And he got a dobro out of it, a real, you know, the, the classic metal dobro, the silver steel jobs. And so uh, we went over to France. We went to meet him. The company didn't have their shit together in terms of showcasing him properly. But they paid him the ten grand. He signed the deal, and they went off after Medium. We went over to England. We had traveled from Medium to London, from Cannes, France, to London, and Rocky had said that he was never getting on an airplane again until he could get on one that would land in Houston. He hated flying. <laughs> so we wound up taking a train across France over to uh, Calais, and then got on a boat, of course, and went across the English Channel. And this being February, it was rough. I mean, the channel crossing was normally a couple hours. This was like four or five, and it was really rough. I mean, I went, I went out on deck once. The wind was blowing so hard that you had to lean at a 45-degree angle or you'd be knocked down in you know, big waves you know, I have, I'm one of these people that I don't get seasick. I loved it. But Rocky and Ramona had had to eat all the drugs that they had on them, which was apparently substantial, before getting on the boat because we had to go through customs in England. So they immediately got throwing up and were turning green, seasick and awful. And so the boat got to Folkestone. And we went into customs, and they took one look at us. Here's Rocky. He's carrying, we had, I think, five guitars on this tour, even though we didn't really have a date, but he needed to have them for these recordings he was going to do in London. So it's three people, five guitars. One of the guitars wasn't a guitar. It was a case full of 10,000 French francs. <laughs> and Folkestone, we later found, was one of the main entry points for illegal drug smuggling. So customs just took us aside, and we went through two hours of hard-nosed grilling to the point where they, were, they opened up unmailed letters that we had with us, sealed, and read them. And ask us questions separately to make sure that, you know, everything matched. And I mean, after, and then after three hours, finally, they realized that we didn't have anything on us. Of course, they'd gone through everything we had and they let us go. And so then we went to, to get through the last step and which was the currency exchange. I mean, back then there wasn't any euros, so it was francs into pounds and the francs then were worth maybe 17 cents each or something and a pound was worth i don't know 350 or four dollars so rocky's entire guitar case full of french francs came down to a stack of pounds about three inches tall <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at that and just never to this day believed that he you know that he had gotten ten thousand dollars worth of english pounds <laughs> i mean his eyes got the size of saucers and they handed him this one hand they handed him a stack of pound notes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole guitar case was full, and those French francs were really big, you know, and colorful, and every 
every one was a different color, every denomination, and they were bigger than regular bills, and English pounds were smaller even than dollar bills. So <laughs> he never got over that, I don't think. And of course, we were late getting to England, getting to London because of the delay. So we were on a later train. So the road manager meeting us gave up. No one had cell phones. We had no way to let him know. And so he had gone and we landed in, in Victoria Station, worn out, beat, hor- you know, in horrible shape, no idea what to do. So we just checked into the hotel on top of the station. Went down to the bar as soon as we got our bags in the room. And by then it was something like 11.30 and Rocky was sure that 12 o'clock was going to be the deadline for the bar. So he ordered three triple scotches and started slamming them. And at 10 till 12, the bartender came around and wanted to know if we want another drink. And Rocky's going, well, I guess you have to get rid of these drinks at midnight, right? The guy goes, well, no, sir, you're a hotel guest. You can stay here as long as you want. (laughs) By then, he slammed down about half a bottle of scotch in 20 minutes. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, that's our our man, Rocky Hill. He, he was turned over to the English road manager for the label, and I was basically said, you know, you, you can go back now. So I went back to Nashville, and they got in the studio once, and nothing happened. They didn't get a record. And you know, one more missed opportunity that we missed talking about earlier. But, and he, and the, the people that he had with, that they had set up for him to play with were, you know, really good English blues and drummer and bass player and a keyboard guy and... There was no reason why it wouldn't work except Rocky was just off his nut. It blew all the money. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't know how long it lasted, but not very long. I mean, he was going around, had me going around trying to find drugs in London, and I knew no one in London, of course, but happened to run into the road mangler (laughs) on the street. Rocky, he had been in London because he got... He was involved in a film that had run out of money and just abandoned him there. And so he wasn't much better shape than we were, but Rocky loaned him a bunch of money and he knew how to get some pot and some nose hash, I guess. Of course, Mangler knows how to get that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> always. So I was able to keep Rocky calmed down and he was traveling with his girlfriend at the time, who Ramona, who was a feisty, tall, good very good looking, very tall chick who just took no shit from him. I mean, I remember him, her telling him once when they were having an argument that she was going to claw his eyes out and feed them to the birds. <laughs> I mean, and Rocky's this big guy, you know, and I mean, he was scared of her. <laughs> so there we were in, in Chelsea, and finally I got dismissed and went on back to Nashville, and the whole project cratered because Rocky just didn't want to, I don't know, he just didn't have, I wasn't there, so I don't know how it went down in the studio, but I know they went in once, and that was the end of that. Meanwhile, though, the late, RCA was funding this. It was actually not Tomato. It was going to be called Utopia Records. And RCA was funding it, and they had Kevin Eggers, who had Tomato later, and who had prior to that had had Poppy Records, which was the launching label for Towns. 
And he had a partner named Giorgio Gamalski, who was a Russian, half Russian, half Swiss rocker who had helped in the early days of the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones career. Had a band called Gong, G-O-N-G, yeah. really experimental. Yeah. And Magma, that was another one of his. Magma was a Swiss band that sang all their songs in a made-up language that the drummer created and somehow convinced A&M Records that they had that he had created this saga all in this language, Contarkos, which you had to hear all nine records before you would fully understand the entire story, which... <laughs> And Herb and Jerry bought it for a while, but after the third or fourth album, I think they pulled the plug. And I don't know if the story ever got finished, but it was very German um, march drum rock kind of thing with heavy, heavy percussion, of which this guy was a drummer. So at any rate, Magma, which is one of the one of the great non-happenings of European rock. <laughs> it did a lot of records, though. I mean, eight or nine, maybe. <laughs> At any rate, Giorgio was involved, and he was really, he had all these credentials and everything and knew nine languages, but made sense in none. And finally, RCA pulled the plug on the whole thing. They got one album out with Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll, and that was all of you This was, by then, this had worked around. This was in the mid-'70s, and so... We went into a little studio in Houston with some local players just to try it out and see. And uh, actually, we had Doyle Bramhall Jr. on drums, who uh, at the time had a serious alcohol problem and actually had a bottle with him in the drum booth we didn't know about and passed out in the middle of a take. So uh, <laughs> we figured he probably wouldn't be... <laughs> <laughs> the, the drummer to look for in the long run. But we had a good bass player, and we, I heard enough to figure Rocky could, you know, he could take care of business once we, we red light went on. So I hooked up with a fellow in Dallas named Danny Brown who had done uh, engineered a couple of Lightning Hopkins records and knew my dad. And so Danny said he could put together a rhythm section for Rocky and we should come up to Dallas and cut this record. So I said, oh, that's great. So in 70, summer of 77, off we went. And uh, we had several false starts. Danny had said he was going to get the hot guys from Oklahoma, from the Leon Russell circle. The A-team from Tulsa would come down because we didn't. he didn't know anyone in Dallas who was that good. So we, we were going to get them. And then the, the boys from Oklahoma came, and they had sent down what must have been about the C or D team, not the big guys. So... We tried it, and it didn't work. So we had to uh, look around, and we, Danny said, well, you know, we could go over to uh, one of the Dallas suburbs, Garland, I think, and work in a studio there, and we can get Delbert's boys. It, it was a keyboard, bass, and drum. So we went over there, and these guys had their shit together. They knew what they were doing. We were in a studio autumn sound and the engineer was phil york who went on to win some grammys and is sort of a legend in texas so within a few days we'd knocked out basics on eight tracks and done some overdubs and was starting to sound good and we were getting to the point where we thought even though we only had eight tracks 
one of them was a eight minute workout on town song waiting around to die. So I was managing towns then and I was publishing David Olney. So my concept was this album would be songs of Rocky Towns and David Olney. And I would be the kingpin, the producer, the publisher, the manager, and I would be the next Phil Spector or at least, you know, John Hammond or somebody. Somebody big, bigger than what I was, which at the time was not much. You know, I was here in Nashville working for Jack Clement off and on as he went through his various labels and stuff. So long story short, at some point before we got to mixing, Rocky took the rent car, went to Houston in the middle of the night, apparently went over to Bill Hams and played him this stuff. And the next thing I knew, I was out of the picture, and Rocky signed a new deal with Bill Ham. So here I was. I'd spent maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars on this record, and now I had a record and no artist. And so that was pretty bad. <laughs> but I kept a hold of a cassette, the masters. Danny Brown kept in Dallas, and I have no idea what happened to them because every time I asked him, I'd get a story about, oh, they're some time, and they're over here, and oh, they were under the sink, and they got wet, or oh, you know, whatever. But I think he probably gave them to Bill Ham or sold them to him or something. But I have no idea because I've never seen them since. But I did have a cassette. So, oh, oh, and Rocky and I even had another go. Rocky went back to Bill. Then that broke up again. Then I tried to work with him again, and it never happened. And then Bill and I got to talking and decided we would co-manage Rocky, and we figured the two of us surely could keep him together. And Bill got him a record deal with Virgin and put an album out, had a big tour set up, world tour. He'd sent Rocky, had done the, the, the round where you go around and do the interviews all over the world, set it up, had the album, and then Rocky got jaundiced from shooting up or something and couldn't take the tour. The tour cratered. It never happened. Bill kind of got, that was enough for him. And uh, so then later, the two of us tried it together, and we still couldn't make it all happen. Rocky was just his own worst enemy. You know, he was spectacularly good. I mean, even Billy Gibbons gave a long description of, of his technique and Billy and he stayed friends all these years. And well, actually there's a bunch of stuff they recorded together that never saw the light of day, but Rocky would just sabotage every effort that would, that might've helped make him what he should have been, which was a household name, rock guitar, rock blues guitarist, just a phenomenal skill. So, um, he passed away from, uh, I think some sort of internal ailment, no doubt, not helped by his lifestyle. And uh, then it dawned on me that I didn't have to deal with him anymore. I could get these recordings out there. So I got them over to a fellow in England named Pete Macklin, who had a label uh, who I worked with at Demon Records when I was a U.S. A&R person for Demon slash Edsel Records in 96 to 2000, and we got to know each other. And I sent him the Rocky stuff 
and he had moved on. Demon got sold and sold again, and everyone was fired and this and that and the other, and he had gone on with another label. So I sent him Rocky's tape. He loved it, and he put it out. I mean, we didn't do anything. It was the cassette bumped up to digital and put out with a bunch of pictures, and I wrote a long liner note thing, and they put out a really nice 16-page booklet and a Texas guitar legend put it out over in Europe and I sold it here and it did hardly any business at all because by then it was, I think, 2011 or 12. And there's so many ways not to make it. And there's really only one or two ways to make it. And Rocky figured out he must have at least gone down 50 roads to, to not make it. This is a person had to have had every opportunity in the world considering his brother was in one of the biggest yeah, bands in yeah. the world oh yeah and bill could bill would put him on in front of zz occasionally and big huge auditoriums and stuff and uh, well no they were past auditoriums they were in uh, arenas and rocky would do a show or two and then nothing would happen he would go off or something and he or he and bill would have some squabble and Man, I really appreciate you inviting me over here to tell stories. Hey, man, it's been fun. I had forgotten a few of those stories. It's great to see you again. Yeah, indeed, and you, and here you're doing so good out there, traveling all over the world and well, playing I, folk music. Doing what I can, man, doing yeah. what I can. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me over to his home here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about John at Lomax3.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.